I'm George Walker, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and we get to know the person a bit behind the persona. Our guest is Dr. Dottie King. Dottie King, the president at St. Mary of the Woods College, the nation's oldest Catholic women's college. An acclaimed mathematician beginning her career as an assistant professor of mathematics, she's served as the chair of the Sciences and Mathematics Department and assistant dean of undergraduate and international affairs. She's described as being passionate about the importance of women's colleges, and she's delivered presentations, published research on factors that encourage women to persist in the study of mathematics. President King, thanks very much for coming and joining us. Thank you. We've got a lot of questions for you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Terre Haute, Indiana. So you're a homegrown product. I am a homegrown product. Product of the public schools there? I am. Indeed. My family, I did graduate in one county uh, east of there, Clay County. Uh, My family moved there when I was in high school, so I'm a graduate of Van Buren High School in Clay County. But I have three uh, degrees from Indiana State University. What was your family like? My family is good. My my father passed away when I was young, so it was a female household. And um, my mom and my sister and I uh, continue to be very close. I did have a stepfather eventually, and uh, we traveled a lot and uh, did a lot of outdoors things. I grew up riding horses, and it was a good family. When uh, you were growing up, elementary school, uh, perhaps middle school or junior high and high school, uh, what were the subjects that you enjoyed the most? Interestingly enough, not mathematics. I really loved to read, and so I think reading and, and language arts were my strength in elementary school. I did love school, though. Every time I was in a new grade, that was the grade I wanted to teach when I grew up. So I always knew I wanted to teach. It just kept, as I progressed, what I wanted to teach and what grade level progressed. It wasn't until middle school that I started to love mathematics. And I had uh, a middle school teacher. His name was Mr. Gerber. He was very encouraging and um, told me I was good at it. And I don't know. A a, a switch flipped and, and I began really being interested. Then in high school, I had a, um, a teacher named Mrs. Deanne Lair, who was one of those fun teachers that you loved to go to her class. She always had a smile. She was peppy. Um, if, if a student wasn't understanding something, she would tell them, go to the board. And, and she, would, she would have them work a problem with her watching it carefully because she was kind of dissecting where they were losing understanding, which which parts of the problem they understood. And then by watching them do the problem, she could see where they weren't understanding. And I was just a real fan of how she uh, ran a classroom and how cared for her students were. And it was then that I decided I was going to be a math teacher, but I thought I was going to be a high school math teacher. For many of us, uh, being sent to the board was sometimes a punishment and always a a source of embarrassment. It's it's wonderful to hear of a teacher who actually used it in a positive way. Right. She really did. And, you know, Mrs. Lair's about to retire, but several of my children have had her in class, and she maintained her passion and her, her exuberance and the fun in the classroom throughout her career. 
You've mentioned enjoying reading as you grew up and enjoying outdoor things. Were there other hobbies, things that you did in uh, that time? I come from a family of crafting women, and they tried really hard to help me with that. I I do enjoy things like cross-stitch and crochet, but I'm pitifully slow at it. So I often take years to complete a project, and they would chuckle. My grandmother and I were, were working the same doily pattern in crochet, exactly the same one, and mine ended up being uh, maybe 8 inches in diameter, and hers was 12 inches because I, I was so tight with my hands and all of that. So I, I don't think I was necessarily good at it, but I did do a, a host of needlework. You did then go on to college, and and you stuck in Terre Haute again. I did. I did everything wrong, and it turned out right. I married my high school sweetheart when I was only 19. He was 20, and uh, we had been together since I was 13. We didn't intend to have children until I graduated from college, and our oldest daughter was born 16 months later. And we had one car and one child, and I went to school in the daytime while he watched the baby, and then in the, we changed in the driveway. I took the baby, he took the car keys, and he went to work, and we made it work. And we went on to have six children, and we're still together and have been married 32 years. <laughs> An accomplishment all of its own. Now, you went to college in undergraduate and then on to graduate mathematics, and frankly, the dropout rate for females in math is much higher than it is in, in, say, English, French, anthropology, even biology and physics. Why do you suppose that's true? I, I'm not sure, but it's interesting that you ask because I, um, that's what I did my doctoral studies on. And what we know is that uh, women, young women make the decision about whether or not they're going to persist in math and science fields in middle school. And it's not dependent on how well they're doing. They can be doing very well in those those uh, courses. And it's not dependent on the fact that they still require to take the courses. In other words, they have made a, a decision in their mind, this is not for them. And you have to, to um, get their interest very early. There's a lot more research to be done, but I highly suspect it's somewhat a function of our culture and how we teach those topics and how we view women in those fields. And I think that if you think about a young lady in middle school, she's just in the middle of adolescence and all of the the changing feelings and uh, trying to figure out where she fits with males, all of that's going on inside her head. And unlike boys, she's making decisions for the rest of her life right now. And boys aren't doing that at this stage at all. And so I think that we need to have strong women role models come in and model the fact that in middle school women can do these careers and they can still pursue other things such as family and and so on. I think that's critical. I also think that the teaching pedagogy has to be different. We know that women feel a lack of confidence in some of the ways that these topics are traditionally taught. For example, if I'm teaching a mathematics problem and I say something like, the rest of that is obvious, and then I go on. For a female, 
that may not be obvious at all. And how sh- how a male interprets that, a young male, is, okay, well, I'll figure that out later. How a young woman interprets that is, I'm not good at this, I don't see it, and so I can't do it. Females also do not like to see skipped steps. We're very detail-oriented as opposed to males. We're wired a little differently. We like to see every step of the problem in detail, and we want to see more than one example because with that, understanding the nuances of the problem, our confidence level comes up. The final thing that's really important for women is, and it's not going to be surprising to you, we're very verbal. We like to talk, and we talk out our solutions and and bring meaning to our world that way. And any group of women know that. We share our daily problems with one another, and even if we don't solve any of them, we feel better by sharing them. It's it's just the nature of, of how we communicate with one another. And in in the mathematics classroom, just silently working out problems doesn't lead women to the kind of understanding they get if they are allowed to talk through solutions in groups. So the pedagogy just needs to be a little different for us. One person that I asked about before uh, we got to talk uh, said that really the only thing she had enjoyed in math were the story problems. And when those stopped, uh, it no longer was interesting to her. And so that kind of uh, reinforces exactly what I'm saying because story problems are real-life problems. And even the hugely symbolic language that you get to when you get into higher-level mathematics. But women can do mathematics as well as men, but we uh, have to find ways to help uh, young women believe that and see the value because the job opportunities are, are big for women in these fields, and we, we need to do a better job. You mentioned that uh, you think the decisions in many ways are made really at the middle school level. At the same time as women who uh, do progress continue, the dropout rate uh, even after undergraduate math, uh, the switch to other programs rather than math, again is is much different than it is for males pursuing math. Have you looked a little bit further along the path about I, that? I have, and, and there are a lot of things that, that impact those decisions as well. Some of them, again, go to the confidence level. So that same pedagogy I was describing needs to go all the way up through the college level um, to teach mathematics in a way that women really understand it and feel feel that they're empowered. When I was doing my research, it's interesting because I pursued the research because I was interested, and clearly I had persisted. But I found myself in almost a self-therapy in the middle of my research because I could remember a time that I was sitting in um, a mathematics classroom at the college level. It was an upper division math class so that maybe there were only 20 to 25 students in the room. I think I was one of two females in the room. And the the professor was giving an example and some instruction, and he said, I, I wasn't understanding and I wasn't feeling confident to ask. And I was telling myself that, It looked to me like all the males in the room clearly understood what was going on, so I was quite sure that I was the only one that didn't. So I was taking copious notes telling myself, I'll I'll reread all of this again and I'll make myself understand it. And when I realized that, when I was doing my research, when I recalled that, 
I, I, I now knew on the other side, the males in the room didn't understand any better than I did. They were just at a different place. And I did go home and, and spend just inordinate amounts of time teaching myself. And I would find other textbooks and I would do anything other than raise my hand in the in the classroom and stop the professor and say, I don't understand. I'm I'm curious about the fact that you were in a subject that really uh even even now is not thought of as a girl's subject. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm I'm wondering if this sensitized you and perhaps uh, made you think more about the possible value of of all female education. You know it didn't. I wish it had. I was just ignorant about the value of all female education until I stumbled upon St. Mary of the Woods College. Even that's an interesting story because there were mathematics competitions when I was growing up. They were high school level. And the boys would go to Rose Holman Institute of Technology, which at that time was all male. And the girls would go to St. Mary of the Woods, and each would would take the same test. And then we would come together for lunch, and they would alternate the lunch. Sometimes it would be at St. Mary of the Woods, and sometimes at Rose Holman. And then after the lunch, there would be awards. And I participated for three years in this competition So there I was in the midst of the St. Mary of the Woods campus doing this mathematics competition and still not even thinking about um, the fact that that it was a a women's college and would be a great place for me to go. Uh, It just wasn't on my radar. But just a series of uh, things that you could call coincidence or at St. Mary of the Woods we often call them providence. I ended up at St. Mary of the Woods teaching and I remember the summer before I started, I thought to myself, I wonder if there'll be any difference not having men in the classroom. I wondered about it. And then I got busy with moving in and acclimating to the new environment and didn't think much about it. Uh, the next time I thought about it, I thought, oh, it's no different. The classroom's no different. But I wasn't paying attention. After about four or five months, and I was teaching the second course in calculus, I started realizing I had a student in the classroom that reminded me very much of me. Just her demeanor, something about her reminded me of me. And I saw her one day raise her hand, and she was a little um, shy about it and a little apologetic about it. But she said, could you do that again? I don't understand. And I thought, oh, there's the difference. Some students will thrive in any classroom and would have asked questions no matter what the setting. But that student would have been me, and she would have not not have asked and not have interrupted the flow of the classroom had she not been in this environment. And it's then that I chose my dissertation topic, and I began to really study this, and I... um, I did a mixed method study and quantitative and qualitative analysis, interviewed students, and it was fascinating for me. So you were doing this research while you were teaching at St. Yes. Mary of the Woods as you I worked was finishing a my Ph.D. while I was teaching PhD. at St. Mary of the Woods. Earlier, uh, you'd actually taught after you got your undergraduate degree and your graduate degree in math from Indiana State. You taught there for a number of years and also worked in administrative positions. I actually only taught there. The administration all came at St. Mary of the Woods. And, uh, again, that was one of those things that probably uh, – 
is not very normal in the course of education. I trained in, at the undergraduate level to be a high school mathematics teacher, but because I had begun my family early, after I finished my undergraduate degree, I um, became pregnant with my second child, and I wanted to stay home for a little while. But I didn't want to just stay home, so I started working on my master's degree. And it was at that time when I was finished, I, I was teaching while I was working on my master's at Indiana State, and they offered me a position. And I thought of this as a short-term thing until I raised my children to an age where I was comfortable working five days a week. Because at Indiana State, I was working, I was teaching three days a week. And so I looked at this as a stopgap type situation. But about two years in, I really realized I loved teaching at the college level. And so I stayed at Indiana State in an adjunct position for 17 years, which was not a good career move, but it was really good for raising my six children. And at that time, I, I knew I wanted to pursue a Ph.D. to continue in higher ed. You mentioned that you wanted to uh, raise your children and to work uh, at the same time. You have six. Tell us a little bit about them. Oh, well, they're the joy of my life, and, and uh, no matter what I accomplish, they will have been the best thing I ever did. Um, my oldest and youngest are girls, and they are respectively 30 and 16. And then in between, four boys. This fall, I will have the distinction of all four of those boys will be in college. Uh, some of them have started and then done some work and then changed majors, and so two of them could be finished and are, are about to finish, but they have done some switching around in life and are finishing up. My third son, Michael, will be a senior at Ball State, and so he has one year to go. And then my youngest son, Jordan, just graduated from high school and will be starting at Indiana State this fall. Any mathematicians in the uh, bunch? You know, my oldest two sons well, my oldest three sons were very good at mathematics, and they didn't go down that path to study it, but were very good. My oldest daughter did not like it at all, but my youngest daughter likes it. She's 16 and will be a junior in high school, and she thinks she wants to be a high school math teacher. And and did she seem to make this decision in middle school, as she you She did, and she seemed to start thinking she was good at it, and of course we knew to encourage that, and... She just finished Algebra two and likes it and thinks that's what she wants to do with her life. Was there a particular math that you liked the best? Kind of like the earlier story I told you, I think I, I tended to like the one I was in the best. <laughs> but I think now if you would ask me what I like to teach the best, I really love to teach the entry-level calculus, and I love to teach geometry. So... Those are my favorites to teach. Those are your favorites. So after 17 years of raising a family, uh, swapping duties in various ways and uh, teaching as an adjunct and discovering that you really enjoyed teaching at the college level, how did it come that uh, that you did, in fact, take a position at St. Mary of the Woods where you'd, you'd only visited? Right. I had a, a friend and colleague who we had taught together at Indiana State. And I was already in a, a period of my life that I've come to trust. When I start feeling restless, I know something's different, that something different in store is for me. So I was already in that searching mode, and I had actually applied for a position at a high school because I had maintained my teaching license at the 
a high school level. So I had applied uh, for a teaching position in mathematics at the local high school. So I, I, I already was ready for something new. And this colleague told me that there was an opening at St. Mary of the Woods, but it was going to be a one-year visiting position. So at first I wasn't very interested because I thought, you know, that's just going to be something very temporary. But I decided to go ahead and interview at St. Mary of the Woods and at the high school. I interviewed for both jobs the same week and was offered both jobs, and I took the high school job. And on the front side of that decision, I didn't have a feeling in favor of one or the other. Uh, I So I just went with the fact that the high school job paid a little more, it was closer to home, and I would be on the same schedule with my children. But those were what made me take the high school job. But the second I said yes, I knew it was wrong. And after a weekend filled with angst, I called and turned down the high school job and took the St. Mary of the Woods job all based on nothing more than feelings. We're talking with the president of uh, St. Mary of the Woods College, Dr. Dottie King. You asked us to pick a couple of musical selections for our Profiles interview, and we picked one for you. And this is Angel Dubot with her all-female string ensemble. It's a group that calls itself La Pieta, and they play music that Vivaldi wrote for the girls' school, the girls of Ospedale della Pieta in Venice. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So you decided that uh, that the right decision was to continue to teach at the college level, really. I think that's sort of what part of the choice was. Right. And you went to St. Mary of the Woods. Tell us a little bit more. You mentioned that after four or five months that you were teaching, but you weren't quite paying attention. And then lights began to go on. Right. As you began to think about the advantages or the differences of uh, an all-female class. First of all, um, the, I, I enjoy teaching, and I enjoy teaching male and female students. So there was never a negative about teaching males. Uh, and when I, I came, it took me a while because I think that when you're new to a place, you're learning all of the 
the nuances to teach working at that place, things like where the copy machine is and so on. So you get a little overwhelmed with that. And I'd been teaching for enough years that the subject matter and the the, uh, the work that's involved with teaching was uh, familiar to me. So I just just didn't pay attention. But when I did begin to pay attention, um, I first noticed it in my own classroom in the circumstance that I noted earlier. But then I began to really pay attention at the college level. And I uh, started looking at students I advise and how it went with orientation. And I started really paying attention. And I, I noted that young women who would be leaders any place were quickly became leaders at St. Mary of the Woods. From the first day, you could pick them out. And having been in higher ed for 17 years previously, I I recognized that kind of student. And so I realized that St. Mary of the Woods was no different in that, that that some people were just destined and it was part of their very nature to be leaders, and they they became leaders. But I, I began to notice something else, that students who I'm sure would survive any place and would graduate, but would not be leaders. I saw them assume leadership roles. And I read about an interesting study where the in the first go-round of the study, they took groups of young women and put them in, in threes. And each grouping of three was given a totally unknown problem to solve. And purposely, it was above their ability level. So they would have to rely on uh, trial and and some unique ways to bring themselves to, to solution. And then, then a lot of uh, observation was uh, done on how the groups interacted and how each member of the group interacted. And in each woman group of female group of three, there would be a lot of work on the problem and, and a lot of discussion and we could try this. And everyone was sort of equal in the group. And everyone was very involved in the, actively in the solution to this problem. Okay, so then they repeated the whole thing with a different group. But now the, the groups of three were two females and one male, purposely giving the female more numbers. And again, give them an unknown problem and don't do anything different. And the women became silent note takers. The male led the way about the solution and what we're going to try, and the women took notes and supported anything he wanted to do. They were no longer actively involved in the process at all. And I thought that was fascinating because you and I both know that depending on which female you pick, that wouldn't happen with some. They would be right in there. But in general, that happens. There's something that happens. So if you have an all-female environment, you watch all of the women become involved. And I'm often asked this question when I talk with a great deal of belief in single-gender education, especially for some students. I'm often asked, well, what happens then? Okay, we get it. They come to a place where they feel safe and empowered, and they find their voice. But what happens then when they go out into the real world? And and I, I smile when I say it. Once a woman finds her voice, she never loses it. So it's not like she's only confident in this sheltered environment. She just has to find the confidence. Then she always carries it with her. It seems that that this is one of the unique uh, aspects, perhaps values or cultures, uh, uh, maybe the feel of, of what 
people affectionately refer to as the woods. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that feel, about the culture of St. Mary of the Woods. Well, I think this, the culture is modern and and also goes all the way back to 1840. I believe that we were very much shaped by our foundress, St. Mother Theodore Guerin, and that's quite a story in itself, and I could spend this whole time telling you that, and I won't, but enough of the story to to let you know how much I believe that that group of women shaped who we are today. They were approached by the bishop at Vincennes in France. He came to France, and they were asked to come to America in 1840. Think about 1840. The country wasn't very old. And they were asked to start uh, an academy for young women. Now, at that time in America, academies were very popular, and they were patterned in the European design. So this was not a totally... uh, idea from left field, this idea, but most of them were on the East Coast. And so some of those uh, famous women's colleges that you might think of on the East Coast had the same sort of beginning. But this group of of nuns left France, and even though they were sisters and they were, you know, had already in some sense left their families to join the order, they were now leaving their families for good leaving their country, they didn't speak English, and they did this because they believed that this was their calling to start a school for young women in rural Indiana. But they believed they were coming to a place where a school existed and there would be a dwelling place. And when they arrived to the wilderness that is the woods, there was no school, there was no place for them to dwell. There was a small house where a priest was staying, but it was a one-room house. And they had to begin from nothing. So there was a family, a farm family, the Thralls family. And I, I mentioned their name on purpose because that has an interesting nuance today. But the Thralls family took them in and housed them. And Mother Theodore went back to France and got some money. She raised resources to come back And in one year's time, they opened this academy, and they had a building, they had a dwelling, and they started this academy. And I think that kind of persistence and fortitude of uh, making do and finding a way to make things work, that, that spirit is very much with us today. How interesting that that this seems to <laughs> to pervade uh, in in the discussion and the and the feel. Um, you mentioned Saint Mary of the Woods uh, uh, being strongly rooted and at the same time a very modern place in in the way. It's been in a position to be especially perhaps cognizant of the needs of women. Uh, are there some ways that the schools capitalized on this unique student body, seeing the advantages of it besides the development of the individual students? I, I think uh, in, in our history, we definitely have. We, we have some alums that have gone on to do very impressive things. I am, turns out, flying to Washington, D.C. to meet with uh, one of our alums who graduated in 1941. Her name is Jean Wilkowski. And she was one of the earliest females to join the the Ambassador Corps and and become ambassadors uh, for the United States in foreign countries. And she was the first female ambassador in several countries in South America. 
So she was quite a pioneer and has some wonderful stories of being in this all-male band and the only female and how she uh, opened doors for Madeleine Albright and women who were to follow her into this same area. And that's just one example. So the Woods has capitalized on this, and we have women who have gone on to do some pretty amazing things. I believe that um, in recent years, however, we have not. And I think that there may be many reasons, one of them being we are not all women in all of our programs. In our traditional campus program, we are an all-women's college, and no male can get a degree in that program. However, we have the second oldest distance program in the country. It started as the women's external degree program in the 1970s and later became the Woods external degree when we began to admit men into that program. That program allowed originally women to complete their degrees who had begun families and, and, and their degree had been interrupted by marriage and families. And we began to admit men in 2006 because the husbands of our WED students began to see how good the program was, how many majors were available, and how well their wives were able to maintain uh, jobs and family and still persist with their degree. And they asked, why not us too? And so we began to admit men. And so we are co-educational in our distance program. And we have four graduate programs, and they're all co-educational. So I think that once we had that fact that we were co-educational in other programs, we we ceased to really uh, promote the value of a women's college. And that's one of the things I really want to do differently. I know that we have to be careful with our messaging because we're many different things. But I think that there's still real value in the fact that we're a women's college in the campus program. And I think that's as relevant in 2011 as it was in 1840. And we haven't done well enough in promoting our success with young women. How many students are on campus? In the campus program, about 320. Mm -hmm. And how many in the distance program? 1,200. Uh-huh. So... I can understand that uh, that in terms of the balance of the situation, uh, that that the distance program might well affect uh, the face of uh, of the campus itself. It really has, and it's one of those things that I can tell you. When I said we're a unique blend of tradition and legacy, and then being very cutting edge on some things, because being only the second distance program in the country. If you remember the 1970s, you know that I'm not talking about computer-type education in those days. It was largely a correspondence course, but it was always high-touch, where the faculty met with the students in the beginning and the end of the courses, and in between maintained contact. And that made our our WED program very, very popular because it didn't leave you on your own out there to just figure things out and then mail things in and get a grade. There was always contact with the faculty. And another thing that's very unique is it's exactly the same faculty as teaching our traditional program. In other words, we don't have two different schools and different faculties. Our curriculum's the same. We assess the programs the same way. We use the same general studies program. And so anything that we do to improve one 
automatically is built into the other. So uh, we're real proud of that program. But today, that has begun so that each one of these courses has an online component. And if you can see our faculty learning to do podcasts and interactive videos, and there's a, a nice little thing called a jing that you can do and add your voice to just a handout so that as they look at the handout, they can hear your voice. And we're learning to do all of those things. So very traditional in maintaining the high contact and yet on the cutting edge of what makes uh, distance education work for students. You mentioned that you think that in some ways St. Mary of the Woods has not been as good as it should have been about uh, focusing on the advantages, uh, the unique aspects of of really an all-female campus. Are there some other approaches that uh, you think that the school could be using or has been using that really do reinforce this particular approach? Ways to make it more accessible to an all-female group and more attractive? Well, I think that... um it's really very accessible. That one of the things that the parents and students alike find enjoyable is once they step foot on our campus, it, it has a, a feeling of home. We know that once they visit our campus, we have a seventy percent chance that they're going to enroll. So you know that there's something about the campus, and I believe it's it's really multifaceted. First of all, there's just an innate beauty to the place. It's just beautiful to look at in every season. And it it is uh, rural and yet five minutes away from downtown Terre Haute. So you can feel like you're kind of out and, and on your own and yet be very accessible to, to, to all of the activities that the city of Terre Haute provides. So that's very nice. We share the physical grounds with the Sisters of Providence. And we're, we're completely separate entities even though they founded the college, our governance and our finances are separate. But we share this campus, and we love one another. The sisters maintain their love for the students and their commitment to St. Mary of the Woods College in particular and education in general. They believe it's one of their missions. So they welcome the students into their part of campus and into their activities. The students, in turn, love them and so we we have this interaction between the two. Our residence hall is this huge building, which to describe it would be hard on the radio, but it's very large to look at. It's It's got four stories, and it's wide, and then has two ends that come forward to make other hallways, and all of our students live in that building, and they call it their giant sorority house. So they believe that the entire college is a sisterhood, and they live in a mansion, and that's how they describe it. We live in a mansion, uh, and our sorority is the entire place. The The traditions that go on and that they hold on to, a big sister-little sister program where the junior students adopt a freshman, and then they, these become lifelong relationships. Often at our reunion events, Alums will come and talk to me about their big sis or their little sis, and they've maintained contact throughout the years. And the contact and the connection goes beyond the the people that they went to school with. We have a college ring. It's a well-known black onyx ring, and you 
can't just buy the ring. You have to earn the ring. You have to complete 90 hours. You have to be in good standing at the college. And you can't just put the ring on. The ring has to be given to you in a ceremony. Even if you can't attend our campus ceremony, we create a special ceremony just for you. And so that ring connects students through the ages. And I hear stories all the time of, of students being traveling, being in an airport, or whatever, and seeing the ring and instantly feeling connected to that person. One of them may be 70 and one may be 30, but they instantly feel a connection and begin to share about their experiences at the woods. So that's that women's connectivity piece. You mentioned really the uh, opportunities at St. Mary of the Woods and, and the notion that when a woman finds her voice, that that is something that she takes with her. Where do your graduates go? They go all over the place. We have students who study abroad, and then they intend. Right now, one of our recent graduates, uh, she's a pre-med biology major, and she is looking at her options, but she knows one thing for sure. Next year, she wants to take a year to be in the Peace Corps. Uh, they value service to others. Um, they become very aware of the social justice issues and also uh, sustainability. They're very committed to sustainability. That's big on our campus. So she is going to the Peace Corps for a year, and uh, that's not uncommon. Lots of them do stay in the area. By the area, I don't mean Terre Haute. It's about a 200-mile radius where we draw maybe 70 to 75 percent of our students. And, and lots of them go back home and and find jobs. Uh, they go on to graduate school, and, and that takes them a lot of different places. So no one easy answer for that. You mentioned, uh, and it's been one of our themes, really talking about your growing family and your developing family, and you mentioned that you feel that St. Mary of the Woods in some ways is a very family-like setting. Uh, would you say that, that actually um, the years at Indiana State, uh, the years now at St. Mary of the Woods, uh, that these have really contributed to your own family? Well, I, I think that... Uh Nothing in our lives is ever lost, and so I, I'm really grateful for for the years at Indiana State because it was a good good place to work. It's an excellent uh, university as well, and the department I taught in the the mathematics and computer science department, and that department was very good to me, and uh, let. Uh, scheduled all of my classes to be on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday so that I had other days to spend with my children. So that was a very good atmosphere. St. Mary of the Woods is smaller, and so they embrace my family uh, in, a, in a different way. I am only the second president who had children. My predecessor had two daughters, but they didn't live here. He, his family maintained their residence in California, and he lived in Terre Haute for three years. So they lived apart. So while we loved his family, his wife and daughters, we didn't see them often. And now, for the first time, there's a family that's available. And so I have a granddaughter and six children. And an interesting story, uh, the, the night that they announced that I was going to be the next president, there was a dinner, and my family was invited 
one of my sons works in a local Terre Haute restaurant, and he was talking to some of the Sisters of Providence who were on our board of trustees uh, about this restaurant, and he invited them to come in sometime. One week later, a group of them went in, and he was he text messaged me. The sisters came to see me, and he was excited. And then they told me what good service he gave them. So the college just adopted my family. Um, they're calling my husband the first man ever because there's never been a husband, first husband before. So we're having a nice time with it. They they are good to us. The first husband. Now there's a title, isn't it? Right. I'm curious about this. I'd I'd like to know if you were to think of uh, really just the best possible morning, what would your idea be of a perfect morning? Is it at St. Mary of the Woods or is it at home? I don't know. Well, let's start at home. After living in the same home for 30 years, my family just relocated to Vigo County because we were living in Clay County. So we live in uh, the Terre Haute area now. And this morning when I got up, my husband rises earlier than I do. He was sitting on our deck of our pool drinking a a coffee and had his laptop. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I haven't done that yet. So I think that's going to be my new home perfect morning to just get up and get my laptop and just enjoy the quiet of the morning. So that's going to be that. But at, at the woods... It's going to sound so cheesy when I say this, but almost every morning is a perfect morning. I drive onto that gate, through the gate, onto the avenue, and I prefer summertime weather. But if even if it's the dead of winter, I am struck by the beauty of the campus, and I'm glad to be there. I think the work is worthy, and it's just good to be at the woods. We've been talking with Dr. Dottie King, the president of St. Mary of the Woods College, the nation's oldest Catholic women's college. You asked us to pick a couple of musical selections for our Profiles interview, and we picked one for you, and this is by Gustav Holst. For years, he was a music teacher at St. Paul's Girls' School in the United Kingdom, And as a gift to them, he wrote the St. Paul's Suite. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The program you just heard was recorded in June of 2011. 
The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.